Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Samuel. You can read Samuel's story in the first book of Samuel, chapter 1, and from then onwards. So, Mike, let's just find out a little bit about Samuel's parents. Who, who, who were they? His dad was a man called Elkanah, and uh, we've got to say he didn't just have one uh, mum, as it were. Elkanah had two wives, uh, one called Hannah and one called Penina. Now, it wasn't unusual in this period of Israel's history for a man sometimes to have two wives. It wasn't actually forbidden in the Jewish law, though it's clear from Genesis, God's plan had always been really one man with one woman for for life. But very often a man might have two wives because of succession issues or particularly if they couldn't have children. So we, we do find a number of people in the Old Testament who for a period, we'll have two wives. It eventually died out in Israel's history because it was simply too jolly expensive, uh, as any of us who married will know. <laughs> so there are advantages and disadvantages. Um, but for, for, for him, what was his role? What, what... Uh, so uh, Elkanah was uh, a priest. Well, actually, we discover in the Book of Chronicles, he was probably a Levite, so a supporter of the priests there in the tabernacle. And his, of the two wives, the wife that fits into the story with Samuel is Hannah, She will become Samuel's mum. And the story starts with a sadness, as these often do. Uh, Penina able to have children, Hannah not. It's really fascinating how in this period of history, um, again and again, uh, the women are often not able to have children and it needs God's intervention to bring about a conception that will produce a child that carries Israel's story forward. And Penina used to provoke Hannah. Uh, there was obviously no love loss between these two at times because she didn't have children. And Hannah really was so sad. And, you know, her husband would find her crying because she she couldn't have a, a child. And, and so one day as they went up to the uh, sanctuary at, at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was probably stationed, um, they would go up and meet their Eli. Eli was a, a priest, but he was also probably the last of the judges, although he doesn't appear in the book of Judges. He's functioning in that capacity. And and there's poor Hannah crying bitterly before God and her lips are moving away in prayer. And she's crying out and says, oh, God, please hear me. Give me a child. And Lord, if you give me a child, then I promise I will dedicate him back to you. And, you know, he will serve you forever. But but she's obviously praying sort of under her breath and her lips are moving. And Eli comes up and says, woman, what are you doing here? Are you drunk in, in the, the sanctuary? It, it, he thinks that she must be. And she says, no, sir, I'm not drinking at all. I'm, I'm just a woman who's in incredible anguish. I, I'm crying out to God for this child. And Eli says, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you your request. And the story begins to turn as she gets pregnant with the boy, Samuel. So it's absolutely crucial then that there's a successor. Dad would have been really hoping for this, I'm sure. And particularly because Hannah 
was his favorite wife. This is always one of the things that happens that we see where there are two wives, one always gets favored over another. And, it, you know, it, it rarely has good outcomes. So Eli, the priest, says to Hannah that you will have a son. Bear in mind that everything up until that point indicates that she couldn't have a son or couldn't have a child even. Um, wh- wh- where has that come from? Where has where his belief come from that th- this will happen? Oh, who knows? Eli is a real mixture. As we look in these chapters, on the one hand, he's a priest, but on the other hand, we discover in chapter two, he's really not done a good job at looking after his sons who abuse the priesthood and take bribes. We discover later on, he's become old and fat and falls off a chair and he breaks his neck. Why is he old and fat? He's probably been eating lots of the sacrifices himself. So he seems to have been a real mixture. So I would say God spoke through him almost perhaps despite him as much as because of him. But the boy is born and this is Samuel. The boy is born and this is Samuel and there's great rejoicing. But of course, she'd made a vow to God. She said, God, if you will give me the child I've been longing for, I'll dedicate him back to you and he will serve you forever. And by that, she didn't mean the sort of dedication that many Christians have of their children today uh, in a service. She meant she really was going to give him back. Give him up almost. To God's service. She was going to hand him over to be able to serve God. And so she keeps the little one uh, until he's until he's weaned. Now, that's a little older in those days than today, but we think it was probably, say, when he was about three years old. Any mum listening to this story will understand what must have been going on in her heart here. She has longed for a child for so long. Eventually, she gets pregnant. She's given this child, but she's vowed to God that she will hand him back. Wow, what a woman of faith to do that and how it must have cost her. And so... She does indeed take the child when he's around three years old back to the tabernacle in Shiloh where Eli is and entrusts him to Eli and to those who are there so that from the earliest age he can start to serve the Lord at the tabernacle. Can you imagine how she must have felt? when she walked away. Heartbroken, I should think. Must have been heartbroken. Mm. She used to go and see him. Remember, you know, no uh, calls on your mobile phone, no (laughs) no FaceTime or anything in those days. Travel difficult. But she used to go once a year, take him a new little coat that she'd made for him. Once a year? Yeah, it must have been a huge sacrifice Mm. Mm. that she made. But this reflected the seriousness of her faith. She'd made a vow to God and she was determined to keep it. So little Samuel then is in the care of Eli, the priest, and brings him into that role? Is that what happens? Yes, and he starts to serve Eli. He's just there as a servant, doing the bits and pieces, whatever uh, Eli needs to be done. There is the little Samuel um, serving him. So, And this this covers oh, could, about nine or ten years, we think as he's growing up. So he's become now a young teenager by the sort of turning point of the story for him in chapter three. And Eli is a sort of mentor then by the sound of it. Yes, Um, although, as I said, I, I suspect he was a bit of a mixed mentor. He's certainly not perfect by any means. 
And Samuel, if he's to be a priest, if that's his destiny, um, needs to learn what? He needs to learn all the rituals that are involved in the sacrifices. I mean, if you read those first seven chapters of Leviticus, the detailed prescriptions, then the priest shall do this, then he will take that, then he'll cut this out, then the blood shall be sprinkled here. And each one of them, for the different types of sacrifices, incredibly different. And remember, this is not, oh, it will do. This is holy stuff. So there would have been a lot to learn. And as he serves over these nine or 10 years, he's getting mentored learning what lies ahead of him. But God is about to break in and to change what this lad thought he was being trained for in life. So as this young lad was sort of looking to Eli as an example, was he learning how to to listen to God? Well, chapter three starts with these words that the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now, in those days, one version says the word of the Lord was rare. Rare. Another version says messages from the Lord were rare. In other words, God wasn't speaking. The word of the Lord was rare. Visions were quite uncommon. It seems like God isn't speaking. Remember, this is at the end of that period of judges we've spoken about in a previous episode, this constant downward spiral of Israel's faith and relationship towards God. If we plug our ears to what God is saying, God eventually stops speaking. When we stop listening, God stops speaking. And Israel has so closed its ears to God over this long period of the judges. Remember, 325 years or so that whole period covers that now it's very very rare for God to speak so Eli as as a judge and a priest it seems like even he wasn't getting much from God it's it's very very rare at this point for anyone to hear anything from God a reflection of how dark these days were in Israel's history so Eli was almost just going through the motions of the, the, the ritual of sacrifice. And, and it shows you how easy it is for us to go through the ritual of religion without there being any reality underneath it. And as we'll see later in the prophets, God hates ritual without reality. So there's loads of ritual, loads of sacrifices, but little reality of relationship. And so God's not speaking to his people because there's no heart there towards him. That can't have made life very easy for for Samuel, who's supposed to be learning the ropes. Can't have been easy at all. And the only reason it changes is because God breaks in. So we get this great story in 1 Samuel chapter 3, where Eli's gone to bed one night and Samuel's sleeping near the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. And he suddenly hears a voice, Samuel! And he stirs from his slumber and he thinks, oh, no, what does Eli want at this time of night? And he goes and shakes Eli and he says, yeah, you called me? And Eli said, no, of course I didn't call you, stupid boy. Go back to bed. It's the middle of the night. He goes back to bed. And then later in the night, he hears a voice, Samuel, Eli's calling me again. And he goes back. Same thing happens three times. Eventually, when Samuel goes back, Eli suddenly twigs, the penny drops. He's not calling him. 
it must be God. And so he says to Samuel, listen, next time you hear that voice, and perhaps this is some of the best words that Eli ever gave to Samuel. Just say this, speak, your servant is listening. And so that's exactly what Samuel does. So literally kind of out of the blue, without any warning, Samuel starts to hear the voice of God. Isn't that incredible? Like you say, without any warning, he's not been trained for this. He's not been mended for it. He's been trained there as a priest, by a priest, and suddenly God breaks in. And you know, God loves to do that. He's God after all. He loves to break into places where people are, are deaf and not hearing. So he suddenly breaks in. And as Samuel says these words, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now, what would be really nice? I mean, anyone who's ever shared a word with anyone else, anyone who's ever felt they had a scripture or a prophetic word of encouragement for someone else. You know, really your very first word, it, it would be really nice to say, David, I, I have this word for you. The Lord says, I love you very much. And you think, <laughs> oh yeah, that's nice. But he doesn't get one of those words. He is the very first prophetic word God ever says to him. He says, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family. I've warned him judgment is coming on his family because his sons are blaspheming God the way they're living, and he hasn't disciplined them. And so I've vowed that Eli's sins and the sins of his son are never going to be forgiven. Go and tell him that. <laughs> that was a tough one, wasn't it? So Samuel wisely goes back to bed, and then the next morning Eli says, so did God call you? Yeah. What did he say? And, you know, I responded and, and, and Eli sees something's going on and he says, listen, tell me everything God told you. Um, so Samuel has to share mm -hmm. this tough word. And Eli, showing there's still some godliness left there, says, God's spoken. Let his will be done. And that was the very first prophetic word that Samuel got. Suddenly, the man who'd been trained to be a priest is finding God has called him to be something else. He'll still carry out priestly functions, but he's been called to be a prophet. He'll function as a bit of a judge as well. And chapter three ends by telling us that as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him. And everything Samuel said proved to be true. In other words, he's growing in his prophetic gifting and his accuracy. And it tells us that all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's our way of saying from John O'Groats to Land's End, from north to south of the nation, knew that he was a prophet. And it's now something has happened that he's grown, whereby the whole nation now recognize that God has ended the silence and has given them a prophet to the nation through whom he's going to speak. So his task became to reveal the truth. His task becomes to reveal the truth, and at times that will prove to be pretty challenging. So that early experience, as you say, must have had a profound effect, of course, on him as he grew up, as he became part of, of, of the world in which he lived. And he then what was acknowledged as a, as a prophet, 
Uh, and a judge, maybe, if he was revealing truth? Yes, it seems to be that he, he sort of fulfills a number of functions. One of the things that Samuel does is he acts as a transition point between the old tribal structure of Israel and the monarchy that will come first through Saul and then through David. So he draws together a number of strands of, of priest, as prophet, as a judge. He's certainly the kingpin. He, he's the leading figure. He's the one you go to if you want a word for the Lord. He's the one who gives direction and and uh, to to Israel, particularly after Eli and his sons die. The Philistines capture the ark, and once uh, that happens, Eli's sons are, are killed in battle. When Eli hears that they've been killed, he he falls off the chair and and breaks his neck. And it's what interesting. A, what a way to go! What a way to go! And it says. He fell off the chair and he broke his neck because he was very heavy. Why note that? Again, it sounds like he'd been abusing the sacrifices that had been offered, maybe eating those portions that weren't his as a priest. And he got big and fat and lazy. Do you know what? It is really easy to get, spiritually speaking, big and fat and lazy in our relationship with God, to take things for granted, for things that once troubled you to trouble you no more. To assume God will turn up and before long we end up like Eli. Such a tragedy that shouldn't have been. And so the focus will now totally shift to Samuel. And you said that just now that there's going to be a line of kings about to uh, appear on the scene. So what, Samuel would be the last of the judges then? Yes, and he'll be this transition point. But as we get to chapter 8, some years have passed by now Chapter 8 says that as Samuel grew old. So we're, we're not given every detail in the Bible stories. So we jumped quite up ahead from you know this young boy yes. to, to, to him being a much older person. And, and by chapter 8, we're starting to read as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges. Ah, there's that word. So we're still sort of in this judges period. But the Israelite leaders, the tribal leaders, they look all around them. And they say, why is it that we are constantly defeated? Now, the big problem for them in these days was the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a people who lived primarily in five cities spread along the coastal strip, perhaps sort of the Gaza area in, in today's language, the Gaza Strip, mm. in that nation called Philistia. And as their nation is growing and developing, they're needing more land. So in these days, they're starting to press the only way they can go west is the Mediterranean. <laughs> so they're pressing east into Israel and constantly attacking Israel to the point where they even capture the Ark of the Covenant at one point. And so the Israelite leaders look and think, why are we constantly defeated? And as they reflect, they think, we can see why. Look at all the nations around us that are successful. What do they have that we don't have? I know what it is. They have a king. What we need is a king. And so a number of things come together at the beginning of chapter eight. The tribal leaders come to Samuel and say to him, you know, look, you're getting old. That's always nice to be told that, isn't it? <laughs> you're getting old. You're not going to be around forever. Actually, your sons are not like you. They're not the same quality and caliber that you are. So give us a king now to judge. So they want a monarchy now. They want a monarchy. And Samuel is mad. He is so mad because he says, you have a king. You have King Yahweh in heaven. Why would you want an earthly king? And he is really so, 
so angry with them. And he goes off to God, you know, really saying, God, they've asked for a king now. They've rejected you. And I really don't suppose that you want. And he finds God gives a surprising answer. He says, do everything they're asking you. And God sees in his heart. Here's some interesting phrase. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And I think there was a bit of self-pity that crept into Samuel's heart here. Well, you mean I'm not doing a very good job and mm. I've not done a very good job in my uh, my boys? And so it's a sense of failure in some respect. A sense of failure. And, and God sees that and says, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me just as they have done, actually, ever since I brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So he, he goes back and says, okay, God said I can give you a king. But chapter 8 ends with him listing some of the things. He'll say, okay, you want a king? Let me tell you what a king will do. You know, a king will, he'll draft your sons in for the army. You know, he'll have chariots. He'll rule over you. He'll, he'll put taxes on you. He'll make you work. And he does this long list of things. <laughs> all the downside of having a king. Interestingly, all of them will get fulfilled under the rule of Solomon. And despite this long list of where he'll do this, he'll do this, he'll do this. The people say, no, we want a king. So Samuel says, okay, God said I can give you a king. And he makes steps for that to happen. So despite trying to put them off, they weren't put off, the people, and they still demand a king. How was that king to be found? God himself was going to lead Samuel to find this king. Um, comes in the most strange of ways in, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, this guy called Saul is looking for some lost donkeys. Uh, so he's out just getting on with the ordinary routine of life, which is so often when God breaks in, isn't it? And the day before he turns up, God had already spoken to Samuel and saying, tomorrow I'm going to send you uh, a guy from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. He's the one you're to anoint. And then he sees him. And when he looks at him, he knows this is the guy. And we read that he's strong and impressive and, and he looks like he's got all the qualities exactly the sort of person that Israel is wanting to be their king. And so he goes up to Samuel and says, have you seen my donkeys? And he says, yeah, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. They're back home. Gets a really practical prophetic word and then says, but to whom is all the heart of Israel turned if not you? It was a picturesque way of saying they're looking to you to be their leader. And he's so humble at this point, he says, but I'm a Benjamite of the smallest tribe and the smallest clan. Why do you say such a thing to me? But he's the one that God has chosen. And in chapter 10, Samuel takes a flask of oil, pours it over his head in anointing. That pouring out the oil was a symbol of the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit and calling him to a task. And and at that point, Samuel says, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his people, Israel? And from that point on, it says the spirit of God comes on him powerfully, just like he had in the judges. And Israel now has its first king. Yeah, the very best God could give them according to the standards that they were looking for. And God gives him every advantage. And he gives them Saul. And Samuel is instrumental in being led by God to do that. I was going to say, what was Samuel's role in all this? We'll probably find out more about Saul in another episode. But Samuel, where, where does that leave him? His role 
is to, as God's anointed prophet and priest, is to anoint Saul as Israel's first king. So in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, we find him taking a flask of oil and pouring it out over Saul's head. And pouring the oil out was, was symbolic of the pouring out of God's spirit. Here is God's enabling for you to do this task. And so in chapter 10, we find that he anoints Saul as the future king. And then he gathers the representatives of the nation at a place called Mizpah, and he introduces the king and everybody says, yeah, long live the king. And in some ways now, Samuel's are all out to be finished. He's done what he was called to do. He's made this transition possible from this tribal grouping to Israel now as a nation with a king. Now, in a sense, his role ought to be finished and he ought to be able to retreat into the background. But that's not how things turn out. OK, so not job done. Not job done because... Saul had a way of taking things into his own hands. So Samuel in chapter 12 makes his final address to the nation. He, he thinks his job is done. That's why I can say, you know, it looked like his period uh, was over. Mm. He should have been able to bow out at that point. He should have been able to bow out at that point. But in, in chapter 13, uh, we find that there's another attack of the Philistines and Saul's at Gilgal. And it must have been pretty tough for the guy because we read that all his troops were, were quaking with fear and his men start to desert. Now, Samuel had told Saul, go to Gilgal and wait seven days for me. But he didn't wait those seven days. Well, he did, but not to the end of the seventh day. So we're on day seven. He's not turned up. His men are deserting. The Philistines are amassing. And so he thinks Saul, Samuel's not come to offer the sacrifice. I'm the king. I'm going to have to do it. And so he offers the sacrifice. And guess what? Just at that moment, Samuel turns up and he says, you've done a foolish thing. And this is one of the characteristics of Saul. He's, he's always excusing himself. Ah, oh, yeah, but you said you'd come and you didn't. And the men were deserting. And Samuel says, do you know what? You've, you've done a foolish thing. If you had obeyed me, God would have established your kingdom for all time. That's an interesting Bible verse. Jesus could have been the son of Saul, mm. not the son of David. Mm. But because you haven't, the Lord's now taken it away from you and given it to another. I cannot have a king who doesn't know how to obey me. And so Samuel's next task will be to, send, to be sent to find that replacement king. So right through, Samuel was always there to stand up for, for God's will. He was always there to stand up for God's will. And he could even stand up to the king. That was one of the roles of the prophet, of course, to stand up against the king and so in chapter 16 he's sent by god to find that replacement for the king uh, you know kings don't like being replaced do they no 
but Samuel knew God had spoken. And so he starts this search for this next king, goes through the process of uh, elimination and God slowly picking out the future king who will be David, who we'll look at in another episode. And, and so that's one of Samuel's last acts is to be able to anoint the replacement for this king that God had given to them, the best he could find according to their standards, but a king who wanted to put his kingship above the king of heaven. And Samuel said, we can't have a king like that. So as you think back on the life of Samuel, that little boy that was eventually born to Hannah and Alcana, and then was trained by Eli, heard God's voice, stood up for truth. As you reflect on his example, how do you find that helpful for us today? I think I would say never underestimate what God can do through you. Never underestimate what God can do through children. Our children can have an amazing, simple capacity to hear God uncluttered in the way that we adults do. But, you know, when God calls us to something, he goes on giving us the words and the ability through our life to do it. It wasn't always easy for Samuel to stand up against the king. But, you know, if you know that God's called you and if you know that God's called you to a task, and that's not just the task of being a church leader or a home group leader, the task that he's called you to in the home or in the workplace. When you know God has spoken to you and put you in a particular place, that gives you an immense confidence to stand on that and say, I'm not here because I was successful in that job application. God put me here. And if I keep humble and if I keep looking to God, God will use me through this role. No matter what pressures might come my way, because I know God has put me here. So I think this is a great story about believing the word that God speaks over your life and the place that God puts you in, and trusting that God will use you even when there are some incredibly difficult circumstances before you, and he can use you just as much as he used Samuel, the prophet, the priest, and the judge. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.